everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I just want to take a moment to debunk a couple of the key arguments that I see floating around, especially in the Canadian press, but more specifically on social media and in the public for assisted suicide and euthanasia. Now, those of you who have been following this podcast for some time will know that this is an issue that is very important to me for a variety of reasons. Uh, I actually wrote a little booklet on this called A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide with my colleague Blaze Elaine several years ago. That booklet can be found uh, over at thebridgehead.ca for anybody interested. But one of the things that's uh, consistently frustrating about the assisted suicide debate is the way in which almost every term and word that's used is twisted to mean almost precisely the opposite of what the term is supposed to mean. And so I don't want to give an apologetics seminar because that uh, a podcast isn't the place for that. But I do want to take a look at just a couple of the really common arguments that are being used to show that none of them actually apply to assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I suppose I, sh- I should start by pointing out the fact that assisted suicide and euthanasia themselves are terms that have been twisted in Canada um, to the point where they don't mean what actually the dictionary definitions of the word are. So euthanasia is when uh, somebody else, usually a medical professional, kills somebody, usually by lethal injection, whereas assisted suicide is when the person who desires to be dispatched has to actually take the poison themselves or has to actually administer the lethal injection themselves. And there are different euthanasia regimes where different standards are in place. And so in, in California, for example, or an organ, you actually do have to be able to take the the lethal drugs yourself. Um, It's an assisted suicide in that the drugs are supplied to you, but you do have to, you're not allowed to take assistance from somebody else while you're taking them, even if the process is overseen by somebody. And this is one of these flimsy safeguards that's put in place uh, to prevent abuses. Whereas in Canada, we actually discuss assisted suicide, but we have euthanasia. Uh, Canada's euthanasia regime is, is particularly Orwellian because we're constantly changing the terminology. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast when I, I've been talking to experts about this topic before, but it bears mentioning again that the words that we're using here in Canada to describe what's taking place aren't actually a reflection of what's happening. And anybody who's read Orwell knows that if you change the language, you can actually change the contours of the debate. Uh, that's true for the abortion debate. It's true for the trans gender debate. It's also true for the assisted suicide debate. And so in Canada, what's actually happening is euthanasia. It's medical professionals who are actively killing patients. We don't have assisted suicide, but what we see is that those who are pushing for this, the activists with Dying with Dignity and other organizations who are pushing for this, often with taxpayer dollars, don't like using the phrase assisted suicide either. And the reason they don't like using the term assisted suicide is because the word suicide still has negative connotations for the vast majority of people. And so they wanted to pivot away from a word that automatically incurred negative feelings and to something else, something that seemed to be very soft spoken, very medical in nature. And that's why they came up with medical aid and dying, which was then shortened to the shorthand acronym MADE, which is sort of 
a very anodyne, very inaccurate way to refer to a process in which a, a doctor will give somebody a lethal injection and put them to sleep like a household pet. And what's interesting is that if you compare Canada's euthanasia regime to other places like California, like Oregon, even like the Netherlands and Belgium, which previous to Canada were the, the primary cautionary tales, you see that our uh, euthanasia rate is, is through the roof. It's staggering. Tens of thousands of people have died at the end of a needle already. I expect that in the next couple of years, we're going to start to see reticence about releasing the proper numbers, just like we do with abortion, because it's not in the best interest of those who push for these sorts of things um, to have the sheer number of people opting for this, uh, especially when we have horror stories about people opting for euthanasia due to poverty or disability that are steadily leaking out to the press. And so I think that one of the key reasons that we see such a huge spike here. And, and a lot of doctors and psychiatrists have theorized this before me. So I'm borrowing from, from some of their work here when I say this is the fact that in Canada, because a medical professional is the one who administers the lethal injection, more people are willing to buy the idea that this is so-called end of life care when really this is just ending somebody's life. And that's given a lot of people moral permission uh, to actually opt for euthanasia because it doesn't seem like it's euthanasia. And I think it's very important to recognize uh, that the terminology that we use in this discussion in Canada is A, inaccurate. Almost every article on the subject is using terminology that does not accurately describe what's taking place. And all you have to do to understand that is to look at coverage in places like California, Oregon, Belgium, Switzerland, the Netherlands to see that it's covered differently there. Uh, and, and secondary, that this was this shift in language was deliberately done in order to change the contours of the debate. And uh, last year when I was speaking in the Netherlands, uh, there was actually an article that came out in the United States by an ethicist who said, we need to do what Canada did in order to win the debate on assisted suicide uh, in the states where it's being proposed is we need to shift away from the word suicide. But there's a couple of other arguments that I, I want to address just sort of briefly. And again, anybody who's interested in, in getting more arguments on this, please do get Get, uh, the little booklet that Blaze Elaine and I wrote, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, because what we did with that book was we actually debated each other to find out what the best arguments for and against assisted suicide would be. And then we tested those arguments uh, on campuses, on Canadian campuses. We tested them against people who were pro-assisted suicide. And the only arguments that we included in that book were arguments that had been successfully used to persuade somebody who had supported assisted suicide to oppose assisted suicide. Because although there are many phenomenal philosophical, theological religious arguments against assisted suicide, what we've discovered doing pro-life activism with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform is that the arguments that we find the most compelling, as often religious, conservative-minded people, are not the arguments that are actually going to work when you're talking to the average person on the street, especially somebody who doesn't hold the same religious or philosophical worldview as you do. And so all of the arguments in that very short book are arguments that were used to actually change people's minds. And let me address the one key argument first by way of, of, of opening this up. And that's the idea that assisted suicide is a right and that this right is fundamental 
And this is something that was decided in the in the in the Carter case uh, here in Canada back in 2015. The idea that assisted suicide is somebody's right. And one of the reasons this language is so seductive is that in, in Canada, human rights is sort of the secular religion. And there's a lot of debate over uh, who who gets human rights, obviously, because human rights are denied to preborn children all the way up until birth. Um, there's a lot of discussion about what human rights means, because human rights mean different things to different people. Often people will argue for human rights when they mean civil rights. But one of the things I think that's important to recognize is that human rights are something fundamentally that are accorded to all human beings. And if only a certain number of people get them, we're not actually talking about a human right to begin with. Now, let me provide you an example. So like everybody listening to this, I know and love people who suffer from severe mental illness. And I think this, uh, this little story here might highlight the extent to which the euthanasia regime in place in Canada pretends to equality and, and pretends to rights when in the reality it's creating a two-tiered system here in Canada. So if I went right now and I applied for assisted suicide, I applied for euthanasia, I applied for MAID. See, it's very difficult to discuss these things because all these terms have been conflated when they actually mean different things. But using using the government's Orwellian language, let's, let's say I applied for medical aid in dying. They would look at my record and they would determine very quickly that I'd never received psychiatric care. I'm on, on no medications for mental illness. I have no history of mental illness. And combining that with the fact that at the moment I have no life-threatening disease, I would not qualify for medical aid in dying. I would not, I would not qualify to be euthanized by a doctor, you know, facilitated by the state and funded by the state. And so I would presumably be declined. Now, nothing can be taken for granted anymore because obviously we know that a lot of people who should have been refused um, have in fact been approved and received a lethal injection, but at least theoretically operating um, um, within the context of the government's very flimsy alleged safeguards, I would be declined. Um, they would not euthanize me. Now, let's say a, a close family member or friend who struggles with mental illness, uh, let's say has had a long history of psychiatric care, um, has been taking medications for years. Let's say this person uh, went to the doctor and applied to be euthanized. Um, as of next March, unless the government changes, we are going to see uh, euthanasia for mental illness be formally legal in Canada, meaning that the only thing that you need to get assisted suicide, to get euthanasia, is to feel suicidal in the first place. And in that case, the um, so-called made assessors and the doctors would take a look at the record and they would say, all right, you qualify, the doctor will kill you now. Now, I'd like to ask a, an important question here, because, of course, one of the one of the things that the government constantly talks about is how euthanasia is a right. And this is what the activists dying with dignity say as well. They're constantly insisting uh, that this is something that is a human right, that those of us who oppose this are, in fact, violating the human rights of those who wish to to die by the doctor's hand. And in fact, it, in, in a really grotesque twist of rhetoric, they're actually claiming 
that one of the reasons it's so necessary to expand euthanasia to people with mental illness is because we're denying people with mental illness the right to suicide by declining to do so. They're already talking about mature minors. I put that phrase in air quotes. Uh, mature minors simply means people, uh, children who they, they claim are mature enough to decide whether or not they want to die. And of course, we've already seen people like Dr. Uh, Louis Roy advocate for the, euthani- the euthanizing of children. But think about this for a minute. Nobody is suggesting that suicide actually become a universal right that applies to all Canadians. And so as long as euthanasia is not a universal right that applies to all Canadians, it means that there are actually two groups of Canadians. There are those who are eligible for assisted suicide, and there are those who are not eligible for assisted suicide. In other words, there are those who the government has predetermined are so worthy of life that if they apply for assisted suicide, they will receive not suicide assistance, they will receive suicide prevention. It is illegal for them to kill themselves, and it is illegal for somebody to help them kill themselves. But we have another group that has been pre-approved for suicide. This means that even if these people do not decide to avail themselves of this government-facilitated and government-funded service, they are not only permitted to do so, the government is ready to dispatch them when they make the decision. And this is not an exaggeration. Uh, as of next March, when, again, as lo- if the government remains the same, uh, assisted suicide euthanasia becomes available to those whose sole underlying condition is mental illness of some, um, some sort. And this will be widely interpreted to mean almost anything. This can mean an eating disorder. This can mean depres- depression, schizophrenia. Um, this will be available to people with disabilities very soon. And so their underlying condition will mean they are pre approved for assisted suicide, meaning that all they have to do is opt for it. They, yes, have to go through the process, but as we've seen over the reporting in newspapers, including finally national newspapers over the last 24 months, um, this process is a sham. People are approved in no time. People who shouldn't be approved are approved. The safeguards in Canada are a joke. And in fact, a cynical person might say these safeguards were actually designed to allow the maximum number of people to die at the end of a doctor's needle. Um, There doesn't seem to be any other very effective way of describing that process. But let me ask you this. In what universe are we equal in Canada when two people can apply for assisted suicide and one person is accepted on the premise that the doctor has pre-approved them for assisted suicide. The government has essentially affirmed their suicidal ideation, has affirmed that they, they too believe this person would be better off dead, would have affirmed that whatever condition they have, that this condition makes their life not worth living and will not only facilitate their suicide, but again, will pay for their suicide over against somebody else who the government has decided ahead of time is ineligible for assisted suicide because their life is simply too valuable, that their suffering, that whatever they're going through in their life 
makes them ineligible for assisted suicide because their lives are still worth living. And yes, the force of the state then can be used to intervene on behalf of that person. That person receives assisted, not assisted suicide, but suicide prevention. And what we actually have in Canada is not uh, a new stage in the fight for human rights, sort of the last human right is what some dying with dignity activists are calling it. The last human right, which is the right to die the way that you want to. In Canada, you don't get to decide the way that you want to. People that the government has decided ahead of time have lives not worth living get to decide how they get to die. Nobody else does. Now, obviously, I'm opposed to assisted suicide and euthanasia in all cases. That's my philosophical and religious conviction. But it's a joke to allow the suicide activists to get away with claiming that this is a human right, a human right that only the depressed, the disabled, and the sick apparently get access to. This is eugenics in practice, and it's difficult not to say that this is eugenics also in theory, because the government is making a eugenic argument when it decides, when it decides who in fact has lives that are no longer worth living. And I think it's interesting to look at what these terms mean in the Greek here. Euthanasia is simply Greek for good death. The premises are baked into the etymology of the word. Eugenics, interestingly, is Greek for good life. And so what we see is those the government has determined do not have a good life are then permitted to opt for a, a air quotes, good death, which is dying at the end of a doctor's needle. Because, of course, just like the phrase dying with dignity, the fundamental underlying inherent implication of the phrase dying with dignity is that in order for these people to die with dignity, they have to die faster. Everything they say is a specific judgment call. Everything they say has the premises of their argument baked into the terminology. And it's, it's just an absolute masterclass in propaganda and Orwellian uh, speak when you look at how they've managed to entirely twist the terms of the debate by using different terms. And it's just so fascinating to me in a really sort of horrible way, like you're watching a car accident unfold, to see so many people buy it, not realizing that, say, you know, people have saying something like people have the right to die with dignity. What you're saying is that those who have depression, those who have a disability, those who are suffering horribly from a terminal illness, are those people not dying with dignity when they choose to live with courage and face each day? Are, are those people not living with dignity is the way to die with dignity to call a doctor and to give you a lethal injection? That is the implication of what these activists are saying. These are incredibly dangerous people. I've said this on the podcast before when we were talking to people like Alex Schattenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. I think that these are the most dangerous people in the country right now because of what they're pushing for, because what they're pushing for is a regime in which the vulnerable will not only fall, afraid, uh, fall prey pardon me, to suicidal ideation, as they so often do, but that suicidal ideation will be affirmed by the medical profession and the doctors. That's the first argument I think just needs to be addressed, is the, uh, this idea that, that assisted suicide, that euthanasia, that medical aid in dying is the last human right, uh, and that we are a more equal 
uh, more respectful nation by legalizing and enshrining uh, this new right into law. This right, air quotes, is only being given to a few. Those people are pre-approved as eligible uh, for state-sanctioned suicide because the government has decided they have lives not worth living. And the only way, the only evidence you need to prove that what I'm saying to you is true is to ask yourself, if this is a human right, why is it only being offered to the disabled, the depressed, and the ill? It's not being offered to everybody. And so we need to be able to see through this. Now, I want to point out here that this argument is not just an argument that I find persuasive. Again, I, I come from, uh, from a Christian background, and, and my, the arguments most persuasive to me against assisted suicide would be religious arguments. But the majority of Canadians uh, are not religious, and the majority of Canadians are certainly not Christian. And the argument I've just articulated for you is the argument that the majority uh, of people on campus have found convincing to the point where they've changed their minds about Canada's euthanasia regime after hearing it articulated. And this is an argument uh, that's part of a presentation we present at Canadian Physicians for Life every year, my colleague and I. And we've heard from a lot of medical students that are currently attending medical schools across the country that this argument has not only um, been compelling to many of their fellow students, but this argument has in many cases been seen as compelling by, by um, their fellow physicians, their instructors, their medical instructors. And so this is something I think that, that you should keep in mind. Another argument, and this is an argument that has a lot of emotional power to it, is that assisted suicide somehow alleviates suffering. And I think that this lie, again, is so insidious because the precise opposite is true. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that a government that claims to be secular often claims to be secular because they, they say that their positions are neutral. But I think the first thing I want to say, um, just to make the point about the false neutrality of government, there's no such thing as a neutral government. And so you may have a government not rooted in Judeo-Christian principles, but their principles then will be rooted in something else. There is, the thr there is a throne at the center of every culture, and something is sitting on that throne. And if you don't have the God of the Bible on that throne, you will have something else. And so when you make the argument that assisted suicide alleviates suffering, you are assuming, you are premising that argument on the idea that there is nothing after death. You're not neutral at all. You're, you're actually making the case that there is no heaven, there is no hell. When people die, this is all there is. Because when you say that assisted suicide alleviates suffering, you are saying that when that person's heart stops, when that person dies, when that person's soul leaves their body, if you believe, in fact, that they do have a soul, there's nothing else. Their pain is over. You are assuming that there is no judge. You are assuming that there are no divine consequences, even for this last action. You are assuming that every major monotheistic religious tradition and many others are all wrong. Um, and so this is secular humanist principles that are being sold to us under the guise of neutrality. And although that's not an argument that would be convincing, I think, to, to many secular people, I do think that it's necessary to point out that all of this is premised on the idea uh, that when you're dead, that's it. 
Um, our euthanasia regime is premised on the idea that we are essentially human animals and, and once we're gone, we're gone. Um, and so like primarily, I think uh, religious people should be more suspicious of this argument than they are, because I've found that the alleviation of suffering argument is the one argument that a lot of religious people seem to fall for because it exploits their empathy. Uh, and they often forget that this argument is premised on profoundly anti-Christian principles. Now, there's another reason that this is wrong that I think everybody should agree with, which is that assisted suicide does not reduce suffering in society. It spreads suffering. We are not merely individuals. We are members of families and communities. And when we lose one of those members, especially prematurely, we all suffer. And it's almost staggering that this has to be pointed out. But you see in our very hyper-individualist, hyper-atomized world that this argument is constantly used that if one person can destroy their own life through drugs or what have you, who else does it hurt? As if nobody cares about the person uh, who's dying of drug use or something else. So our sort of libertarian liberal regimes plunge towards ever legal, ever legalizing, ever permissive um, approaches to things while constantly asserting that all these different practices don't hurt anybody but the person who's opting for them as if that person is floating as a single individual unloved by anybody else. When in fact, a lot of these practices end up isolating that person from the people that they love the most and causing untold suffering to the people around them. When, when somebody destroys their life through drug use, the idea that that person's parents or siblings or loved ones are not also in some way destroyed um, is a, an incredibly impoverished view of human family and human community. And this really struck me when, when, I, when I watched uh, Morgan Neville's 2021 documentary, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. That's not my description. That's actually the subtitle. And I'll often watch documentaries um, when I'm doing my workout just because it's a, it's a good way to pass the time. And I, I wanted to watch this documentary primarily because he's a writer. Um, and of course, documentaries about writers interest me. But what really struck me about this documentary is that the it, it began with interviews with a lot of his loved ones, um, and they were talking about his abrupt suicide because he hung himself in a French hotel room in, in 2018 after living a life that was the envy of most people. And, and people were so angry during these interviews, like the unprocessed grief was very visceral to watch. Um, Anthony Bourdain, who by the argument of the death with dignity activists would have, you know, ended his suffering. He struggled with mental illness for almost his entire life. Um, and so uh, therefore his suicide would be a net positive for happiness in the world because he ended it and his suffering was over. Again, if you premise your entire argument on secular humanist principles, but the reality was he very obviously had not alleviated suffering in society. He had left behind dozens, if not far more people who suffered profoundly in the wake of his suicide, would burst into tears when talking about it, would be angry with him for leaving them, for, for not giving them an opportunity to help them, to suffer with him. And the documentary ends with shots of his beautiful little daughter who was denied her father, not because he didn't love her, he apparently loved her very much, but because he didn't want to stay. And so this idea that a suicide, that a suicide alleviates suffering, flies in the face of everything we not only know about the human condition, but it flies in the face of everything we know about, about human family. And, and stories, 
the stories that are coming out in the Canadian press and stories I've, I've been hearing personally really highlight the fact that assisted suicide does not alleviate suffering because we're actually starting to now see accounts come out from the various family members of those who have died by assisted suicide. And these people are not only heartbroken, they feel angry and betrayed because the medical establishment, the very establishment they trust their family members with, have in some cases betrayed them by offering them the right to assisted suicide. Uh, the government that they trust to govern over them um, is, is enforcing this, has not only legalized assisted suicide for their loved ones, but it's enforcing that law. People feel incredibly helpless. And these stories, as I've said on this podcast many times, are going to be incredibly disturbing once we legalize assisted suicide for mental illness and the doctor can come into somebody's home and euthanize somebody against the will of their family members because that's the law and they're accessing a right that's available to people like them. Um, it's going to be horrifying, but when you see the reaction of people, let me give you just a couple of examples. Gary uh, Hurtgers of British Columbia found out that his sister Wilma died by lethal injection when her building manager called him to tell him that the coroner had just left her apartment. And Wilma had struggled with depression but didn't tell him or her other family members what she had uh, been deciding to do. An Ontario father discovered his daughter, who struggles with mental illness, had also applied for assisted suicide. He and her mother are desperately trying to stop this, but again, desperate is the right word. There's almost nothing that they can do in Canada suicide regime. Another son who actually is a doctor uh, told the Globe and Mail that he has nightmares about his father's lethal injection, which the entire family opposed. But again, that desire was affirmed. That desire for death was affirmed by the government, affirmed by the medical institution, and finally affirmed by the medical professional that killed him by injecting poison into his veins. Two daughters in BC, this is becoming an infamous story now, found out by text message that their mother had received a lethal injection. And now we're seeing that, um, as the Globe and Mail put it in one of their reports, that that a very complicated grief awaits the family members of those who die um, by assisted suicide. The Globe and Mail titled the report this, quote, a complicated grief living in the aftermath of a family member's death by maid. And it, it was interesting giving a presentation on Wilberforce uh, to the Cardis group in, in Ottawa last year, I ended up uh, hanging out with a doctor afterwards, and he told me that there's a lot of people dying in, in the hospital in Ottawa um, by lethal injection, and that he's noticed a huge difference in the reactions of those whose loved ones die by euthanasia versus those whose loved ones die naturally. And he compares it to the difference between um, somebody who dies naturally or somebody who dies in a car accident. He says the trauma and grief of those whose loved ones die by lethal injection is very similar to somebody who loses a loved one very abruptly, like in a car accident or even worse. And we're, we're just starting. We're just starting to grapple with this. We're just starting to understand this because I think that in, in story after story already, we see the central lie of suicide activists exposed because the claim that assisted suicide reduces suffering is not only false, but it's disgusting and it's contemptible. Like, did the suicide of Anthony Bourdain, who, by the way, with his history of depression, would qualify for assisted suicide under Canada's euthanasia expansion, reduce suffering because his life was over? What about the suffering of his little daughter or his friends or his other loved ones? Would any of them describe their suffering as bearable or are they, like those left behind by the tens of thousands who have died by assisted suicide in Canada, merely forced to endure it? 
It's so important to recognize that everything you are being told about Canada's assisted suicide regime is a lie. The words being used to describe it are false by dictionary definition. We are not seeing assisted suicide. We're actually seeing euthanasia, but they're calling it medical aid and dying. This is not about equality and human rights. This is about the government creating a system in which there are two categories of Canadian citizen. One category is pre-approved for euthanasia. The other category has lives so worth living, according to the government's own estimation, that they will receive suicide prevention. And not only for religious reasons is it a lie that assisted suicide alleviates suffering, it's also a lie because for everyone who dies by the end of the needle, they leave behind tens, if not hundreds, of suffering people behind. These are just a couple of the key arguments that we are being told. And I'll probably end up delving more into these arguments as we get closer to the deadline uh, for assisted suicide for mental illness next March. I still hope that can be prevented. You can find out how to do so by going to either uh, ARPA or going to the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Uh, if you'd like to explore these arguments more, again, go to thebridgehead.ca and take a look at our book, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. Many of these arguments are also articulated at the website care not kill which based its arguments on the arguments put forward in our book so um i hope you were enlightened by this podcast i hope you found it helpful if you want to check out other podcasts go to lifesightnews.com click on the podcast tab you can find the van maren show there you can listen to past podcasts and subscribe to listen to future ones thanks so much for giving us your time this week and we hope you'll join us again next week